again for everything we've mentioned tonight. And thank you for all these uh, little testimonies of how that you've been working in our lives. Um, we pray tonight that you're with us as we reflect on our uh, responsibility to be thankful to you, Lord. Um, and even as we engage with your word tonight, we ask that you're with us opening our hearts to what you have to say. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So each of us has had our own year, um, some of them more rugged than others. Um, and each of us, uh, if we think about it for a moment, we can probably identify trials that we've had to endure um, or blessings we've received that we know that we should be thankful for. Um, but I want to challenge everyone tonight to broaden the scope of our thankfulness a little bit. Because uh, it's a fairly common sentiment that the, the world is a sort of a difficult and savage place, um, but in spite of that, um, in spite of having little to be thankful for about the world in general, um, we have to focus our vision down, narrow down to the small blessings in our life, the individual things we must be thankful for. And that's true, in a sense. But also, I want to challenge you to be more thankful than that. It's... Uh, Part of a, a sense from the, the disaster barking that comes from the news, for example, um, that gets pumped into everyone's social media feed um, about how there's cyclones and those cyclones are getting worse and more numerous, um, about how Donald Trump is a crazy man, all the universities are run by communists and Diet Coke gives you cancer and red meat gives you cancer and smartphones give you cancer and everything in the world on a global scale is somewhere in a shade of on fire or starving or evil. Um, and it seems that if Christ waits much longer to come back, he will pull up on his white horse to find the place empty and ruined with the preceding horsemen with nothing to blame. But it's not just a matter of focusing on the small things. Uh, it's also a matter of gaining perspective on some of the big things so that that gratitude then can be turned back to God. So I thought we'd, uh, in this sort of short half-sermon devotion, um, we'd look at some very big, very rarely acknowledged uh, reasons to be grateful to our God in the way that he blesses the world. Now, that's meant to be a provocative statement. That's not a personal statement. Um, I'm extremely thankful. But, um, for example, here's a common, a common sentiment. Now, these are going to be a little bit stretched out because I put the PowerPoint on a too narrow um, picture, but I'm sure we can pick through that together. Here's a common sentiment. There's so much war and violence in the world, it's hard to be thankful for. You know, we've got the, uh, the, uh, the Iraq civil war going for the last three years with the problem with ISIS there, and um, Syria comes quickly to mind. Not long before that, we had a crisis in Egypt. Afghanistan seems to have been a kind of a, a war-torn mess for about 17 years, longer if you take a longer view. Um, there's been a war for the soul of Mexico for a very long time with a, a sort of a feeble government against very brutal drug lords. Um, every few years, there's these little pulses of violent action somewhere in Oceania, and we send Australian peacekeepers, and... Um, there are brush fire conflicts that are so common between corrupt governments and corrupt rebels in African nations that it's hard to imagine a peaceful Africa at all. And we know that it is the nature of fallen man not to be so much like Adam and Eve in the garden, but more like Cain and Abel in the field. Brothers have been destroying each other since there were brothers at all, and war is a fact of the world. It's unlikely to go away, and it's hard to be thankful for a world where such things constantly happen. But on the other hand, there is less war and violence today than any other time in history. Historically, globally speaking, there is less war and violence today than any other time in recorded history. And this is a true thing. And painful as it is to say that, for example, Iraq has been in civil war for uh, the last three years or so, it's claimed about 70,000 lives there. That is, historically speaking, 
a fairly small war. Not terribly long ago, less than 200 years ago, America had a civil war that cost 600,000 lives. And they managed that with muskets and sabers. All of the small, seemingly endless wars and fights across the surface of the world uh, seem huge and oppressive to us because we get the color photography of them and second-by-second um, second reporting of the, the pain and human tragedy. But my grandparents, for example, lived through World War II, biggest war the world has ever known. And there was touch and go there for a little bit, there hasn't been a World War III. That was 80 years ago. So if we look at this lovely chart here for some perspective, now that's going to be very small for you, very small for me, but I'll explain what you're looking at here. Um, it's kind of a confusing splat of red dots, but this is a graph of European countries that have been involved in foreign wars. So on the left, you've got a list down there of the 40 or so European countries, um, and down the bottom, you've got a scale of time in blocks of about 50 years. Don't worry about the bar graph just so much. That big kind of scattered blot pattern up the top there. The red dashes in that field are periods where the uh, country on the uh, left-hand side has been in a war at that point in time with the country outside of itself. So you'll see on the top line, you've got Albania. There's barely anything happening up there. That's got that kind of white line above the dotted one above that. And then right down the bottom, the UK, and they love to get in scraps. They're involved in just about every war that ever happened in Europe. So you get these big, long red lines with the more powerful countries. You've got like Russia and France and all those guys there. Um, towards the right end of the graph, you can see what's almost like a vertical line. You sort of see that there? On the right side, that's World War II. Everyone gets involved, everyone dives in. Terrible, massively devastating war. And then that big blank white space next to it is the years 1950 through 2000, where just there's been very little war at all in Europe. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that. No one wants to fight when there are nukes on the table. Um, the European Union has made it very hard for European nations to go to war with each other, but this is indicative of a global trend. The big factor is that for the first time in history, war is not particularly cost-effective, which is an interesting blessing for God to place on the world, because 500 years ago, you could conquer the guy next to you, take all his gold, come home, the whole thing was a net profit. Now it's almost impossible for a modern nation to make back their profit out of a war. You just end up with a bunch of broken million-dollar jets and angry citizens who vote you out the next year. Now, obviously, the world is not completely peaceful, and smaller wars by, um, in less developed nations keep happening, but on the whole, this is really good news. Like, really good news, historically good news, especially for Australia, for whom the chance that an enemy army will just prowl up and set up shop and plant their flag over Parliament House is approximately zero. This is as peaceful as the world has ever been. And we should praise God for that. Now, there might be less war overall, but it's hard to be thankful when there are so many children going hungry. If only we could feed them, it might be a little bit easier to be thankful for the world we find ourselves in. Because we've got seven going on eight billion people in the world right now. Um, the amount of space that we have to grow food hasn't changed because we've kind of mapped out the place. We haven't, there's no more else to discover as such. Um, we feel like we hear about uh, the scourge of world hunger so much and so often we're desensitized to the image of malnourished children from other countries and we're emotionally exhausted from giving a little bit and then having to justify to ourselves why we don't give more. And sure, we're well fed, but how can we be thankful for that blessing if it's the expense of those who need it more than we do? Well, the truth is, 
that there are fewer and fewer empty bellies this year, this generation, than ever have been. And we might, in fact, see the end of world hunger in our lifetime. It's genuinely possible that like, world hunger as a big capital letters phenomenon um, will be done with in our lifetime. People don't talk about this a lot. It's an unpopular like, success to sort of dwell on because big, uh, big guys like Oxfam and these uh, powerful charities that are responsible for trying to bring food to people who need it, um, they know that if you report that there are less and less hungry people, you're going to get less and less donations. Um, that's a truth, and I can understand that, but nonetheless, this is a truth. There is less hunger in the world. Does anyone know who this man is? Like, obviously, you know it's Norman Borlaug, I've got it written there, but has anyone heard of this guy before? It's amazing that no one knows about this guy. Um, he should have been mentioned in every, uh, every biology class um, in the world for all time as a matter of, as a matter of, uh, of honor. Um, because the short version of Norman Borlaug's story is this. He's the hero that no one knows about. In the 1960s, all the agronomists, the guys who dealt with farming, the population scientists, they were losing their minds. They said, there's too many people in the world. In the 70s and 80s, there's going to be mass starvation. Hundreds of millions of people are going to starve to death. It'll be impossible to feed anyone. Um, India particularly was set for a massive disaster. There was no way they could possibly feed their population. Uh, meanwhile, Norman Borlaug and a couple of his colleagues, they were working in a, in a lab in Mexico in a, a, joint progress, a joint program between the US and Mexico, um, breeding new kinds of wheat. And they got them resistant to the fungus that usually killed them. They made the wheat stems shorter so that they could um, handle heavier heads of wheat on them. Um, they developed a, a two times a year growth cycle for them. They invented what we now call high yield agriculture that completely changed the way that the world regards farming. They spread that innovation to Mexico and then to India and later to Africa. Africa and Asia. This is the most boring hero story of all time, but nonetheless, uh, Norman Borlaug probably saved about a billion lives. That's billion with a B from starvation and death worldwide. It's hard to imagine a single human being being a, a greater instrument of God's blessing to a fallen world. Now this graph is showing the percentage of regions in the world whose population is malnourished. As you'll notice, they're pretty much all trending down there. Now, South Asia does a kind of little up and down thing. That's that pinky purple one. Um, and that seems to, to nonetheless have a gentle pattern of lowering. Um, the yellow line kind of in the middle there is the world. And that seems to go down, plateau a bit, go down, plateau a bit. We're kind of in that plateau, maybe a little tiny uptick at the end now. But nonetheless, this is the picture of what hunger is like on a worldwide scale. It's getting better. People are getting fed. There are fewer and fewer malnourished people in the world. And that's an amazing thing to be thankful for. Hunger remains a serious problem internationally, but not because there isn't enough food. Mostly it's now because there are corrupt governments that make it hard for charitable people to get food to the poor. But on a historic scale, stepping back um, and looking at the world, churches have been praying against hunger on a global scale for hundreds of years. And we get to witness this miracle unfold in our lifetime. That's an amazing thing for which we should be thankful. One more. That's the one. The church seems to be getting weaker and weaker, and the world more and more secular. That's sort of the way it feels when you live in Australia or a Western country. There are many reasons for that, but uh, every week you'll hear another story about another school removing their reference from God from their motto, 
um, or an American town that has to green light a statue of Satan because they have a statue of the Ten Commandments. Um, that's a true story. <laughs> Ridiculous. Um, when you meet someone new who is not themselves a church-going Christian, you mentioned you were a church-attending, Bible-believing Christian, there is a period of awkwardness that you can feel in which they are assessing which category of weirdo to put you in. And in the end, isn't this what we would expect in a fallen world as we approach the, uh, the final days when Christ will return to judge the world? Maybe so, but if we're expecting the church to shrink and vanish from the world, then we'll be waiting a while longer because the gospel is going into more nations than ever and the church globally is growing and growing very well. In Europe, in North America, in Australia, in these Western countries, the church does seem to be becoming uh, smaller or at least less influential. The countries are becoming more secular, less churched, this is true. But there's actually a lot more of the world than that. And everywhere else, the church is advancing apace, is gaining and gaining. I got one more graph for you. I know you love them. You're cheering. But using the broadest definitions of the words like Christian, for example, that's everyone you could conceivably call Christian. Um, there are 2 billion or so, there are 2.2 billion Christians in the world today. By about 250, there'll be about 2.9. That's the red line at the top there. Now, some of this is due to fantastic movements of the Spirit in countries like China, where tens of millions of people have just been coming to the Lord. Uh, mostly, globally, it's due to the fact that Christians like having children. And they have more of them. And those children mostly remain Christian. Similar feature for Muslims, they're the green line. You'll see it has a more severe gradient. That's worthy of another discussion at another time. But the line I want you to pay attention to um, is that blue one, the kind of like flat as attack one down the bottom there. That is your, um, uh, your unassociated, your various brands of atheist, agnostic, um, spiritual but not into labels kind of people. And the truth is, Australia and countries like it may be becoming more secular with less and less church influence, but that only means if the church diminishes in this country, we'll be watching as the international church is, um, becomes led by Chinese churches and Indian churches and Koreans and Brazilians, and they take up the torch as the vanguard nations of the bride of Christ. I don't know what that world will look like. No one does. But if you were afraid the gospel was falling on deaf ears in a deaf world and that God was slowly being forgotten, not even close. And we can thank God for that too. Now, these are all wonderful reassurances. And there's, there's something kind of crazy about the fact that we can live in a world where these blessings are right in front of us, but we don't often consider them. Or they're hidden from us because no one talks about them. But to be ignorant of our blessings is very much part of the human condition. And so I'd like us to look at that chapter that Catherine read for us uh, a little bit earlier in Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 18, or possibly 19. You can follow along in your own Bibles if you have them, but it's pretty short, and I'll read it again for you. It goes like this. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. 
Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Now, there's a lot of very interesting things about this particular miracle, and we'll save those for a time where we're studying that passage more deeply and directly. Um, but for now, it's that last line that I want to focus on there. Rise and go, your faith has made you well. That's what Jesus says to the one leper who shows gratitude. And it's interesting because it doesn't seem completely accurate, does it? Because ten lepers were cleansed. Only one demonstrated gratitude by returning to praise Jesus. To this one, Jesus very heavily says, your faith has made you well. But Jesus' miraculous power made him well, and nine other guys who didn't show an awful lot of faith at all. So Jesus must be talking about more than just that healing of leprosy. This must be a deeper statement than just, you have been physically healed because of your faith. Because his faith has compelled him to throw him at Jesus' feet. He, like everyone else, has the spiritual sickness of sin and no capacity to be self-saved. But in recognizing Jesus and running to him, his faith has made him well. Now, this Samaritan leper probably doesn't have a very sophisticated theology. He's probably not embracing Jesus' feet here with a wealth of understanding like, praise God, here is the promised Messiah who will die and rise again to propitiatively substitute for me and advocate for my eternal life before the Father. His faith is boiling up out of his thankfulness for an earthly miracle. He says, thank you, Jesus, my skin was falling off me, but you gave me my life back. And that attitude, that posture of gratitude and submission before God and his blessings, that is what Jesus calls faith that makes you well. You know, the Jews had a series of festivals and sacrifices to ensure that they retained a strong sense of gratitude before God. Christians don't have those guardrails quite so much. So they have to work harder to not become ungrateful or not to uh, allow things to slip by us that we should be grateful for. But there are things that we can do and that we do do to cultivate that faith that makes us well, that gratitude. We say grace before a meal and we try not to let that become a mindless routine, for example. We engage in communion as genuinely as possible and not sort of robotically when it shows up every month. It helps also to go beyond just the religious ritual if you can. Travel makes you appreciate how spectacular it is to live the way that we do. Studying history helps you appreciate that this is the best time to be alive and we're blessed to be here. But ultimately, each of us is responsible in the way that we check ourselves and seek these invisible blessings like the fact that our kids will probably never get drafted and sent to fight somewhere in the world. Or the obvious blessings like the sudden healing from sickness that happened in Jesus' time and indeed happens today sometimes. For both those kinds of blessing, there is a very human tendency, tendency even, like those nine lepers to, to run off ahead taking for granted the goodness that falls into our lap. But as we come into a time of prayer now, I'm going to invite you to ask yourself tonight, what blessing am I holding that I've run off with in my joy that I owe to God to turn back and to lay at the feet of his son? So let's pray together in that spirit. Father God, 
Father God, we have difficulties and trials and losses, and we lay those before you, and we ask your help coping and overcoming and becoming more Christ-like. But tonight especially, Lord, we think of the good things you've given us. Those for which we are grateful, Lord, and those that have been invisible to us, not so obvious, which we owe to you all the same. We thank you, Lord, for the blessings that you've put on our world and our country and our church, our families, for opportunities that we take for granted, for the privileges that we often let go unacknowledged. Help us, Lord, to submit all that you've given us to you as another thing which you can use to make us a blessing to those around us and make our gratitude show the world that our Savior is foremost in our hearts. We thank you for your Son and all he's done for us, and we pray this in his precious name. Amen.